0: Hello, Ukraine. Hello, Columbus, Ohio. Those are just a couple of places where people listen or watch Odyssey House Journals, and we thank you for thank you for making us one of the most listened to and watched podcasts dealing with addiction and recovery. Uh, and actually, you may not know this, and I don't, hope it doesn't make you nervous, but people are watching or listening all over the world, which That's is awesome. sort of amazing. Which proves the fact that addiction isn't just limited to yeah, Salt Lake sure. City or or for the sure. United States. That's awesome. I'm Randall Carlisle. My usual co-host Rachel Santizo is off today, and we thank you all for for being here. We usually try to start out with a little news story that I that I glean from somewhere, and uh, this I, I found this interesting because. I hear a lot of uh, a lot of people coming into Odyssey House admissions say that they are using gabapentin. Mm-hmm. Did you ever use gabapentin?
1: I was prescribed gabapentin, and uh, before before it became a. Uh, before they really diagnosed it or, or found out that people were getting addicted to it for, right. for nerve damage in my back, and yeah, then the yeah, then it became this was years and years ago. But yeah, that's that's one that's being the, abused now for the, sure,
0: exactly. And the news story says the number of overdoses linked to the prescription medication gabapentin used to treat nerve pain and seizures mm-hmm. is on the rise. And uh, in when was it uh, in from twenty nineteen to twenty twenty? One in 10 overdose deaths involved gabapentin. Wow,
1: I didn't know that. Uh,
0: And a lot of people come in, and I think in the old days, that was one of the acceptable medications when people came into Odyssey House. Anyway, my guest, and I'm happy to have him, is a gentleman named Todd Hall. Todd, welcome. Thank you. Uh, Part of the, I think one of the reasons people watch or listen to this podcast is that we talk to people who have dealt with the demon addiction and, and have come through. And people like hearing the stories because it's not a one and done kind of thing where you go to prison and you're cured or you go to a treatment center and you're cured. You're never cured of addiction. It's a lifelong disease that you've got to yeah. deal with. So maybe maybe just share your story a little for us.
1: And I, I hear it's a pretty wild one it's uh It's a pretty wild one. I don't know if, t- if I should tell it to you in f- reverse or t- from the start or <laughs> whichever <laughs> way you want to go it it is it is, an, it is uh, something I deal with every day now um, and it took me a long time to figure that out uh, uh, six weeks seven weeks ago, I had open heart surgery. I'd show you the scar, but it's probably not appropriate. But they cut me. <laughs> Can we zoom into a scar? <laughs> yeah. They cut me open. I saw and, uh, the scar. Yeah, I showed, I you, you, I showed you. And uh, in the past year, that that was just my recent, most recent blessing. I'm still alive. I shouldn't still be Are alive. Are you really? Right. I'm, still alive, right? I'm, you right. Right. I'm still alive. If I'm you were I'll tell you, it's going to be a hell of a podcast. I shouldn't still Somebody be alive. Somebody back from the dead. Three months prior to that, I ended my chemotherapy treatments for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I was diagnosed last year um, in July. They told me you're 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 gonna die from it, but you're not gonna die today. And so that that's the That's kind of the, my story up to date till now. Um, I don't. I'm not gonna die from that or from my heart. I've been. I believe I've been saved for a reason. But uh, going back, I. I wherever you'd like me to start. I grew up here in Salt Lake, in Sandy. My uh, mom and dad are both educated at BYU. I had an awesome childhood. I had every, everything. I was spoiled, my mom spoiled me. The only thing really not going for me is I had red hair and freckles and glasses. And that, <laughs> that wasn't going for that, you? That way, well, you, you could imagine in, in school, I started to get teased and, and that's where the, the bullying and stuff came in later in life, in my like middle school and whatnot. But uh, so I I grew up with every, everything, you know. Mom and dad, we were upper middle class. That was when Sandy was just starting to grow right. up, on 20, s there. It was considered
0: and, a pretty wealthy suburb. Yeah, summer. upper
1: middle class yeah. or whatever you want to call. It. I didn't know that as a child, but I just <laughs> knew, I knew, and know now, you know, I I had a good life and uh, and uh, everything afforded to me. So. Uh, Dad, we ended up moving up to Canada, um, Southern Alberta. My dad's family's from there. He took over. We took over my grandpa's farm. He had hurt himself, and so total culture shock. Um, a, oh, a, exactly. Yeah. A good day. A good day. A <laughs> and uh, yeah. So I'm here. I am ten years, ten years old. Um, spoiled rotten and sandy. Have everything I wanted. The bikes, the big wheels, whatever. mom spoiled me rotten um and then we moved to the farm now all of a sudden i'm gathering a hundred and something head of cattle every morning to milk throwing hay bales i'm like this isn't anything like sandy (laughs) what's going really going on here and so culture shock uh, and and, but uh, and then my uncle and my grandpa were both there so i kind of had three father figures that would always discipline me one would discipline me different than the other. I'm talking even down to the willow switch and stuff like this. So it was a struggle. Uh, Mom went through a nervous breakdown up there because this is where her family is. Dad moved us away from there and away from here. And uh, she struggled as well, but um, school was hard. There was uh, a native Indian Indian reservation. so So we blended schools, but these kids wanted to fight all the time. So I'd get beat up every morning when I, got off the bus. Really? So, yeah. They, Even though you were um, a big guy. I, I wasn't, I was just starting to grow then, but I mean, there was a three or four at a time, and, and they were in a boxing club up there, and they were taught how to box, and so basically, I mean, I'm just... <laughs> so that was kind of my first stint with violence, and I didn't know that at that young age. I, you know... Sure. So it, it put something... It put something back here for me, you know, some resentments and, and uh, hate, whatever you want to call it. I didn't know how to label it as a, as a child, but it, you know, I didn't like that. I finally uh, was able to, you know, I started fighting back and finally they probably just gave up, you know. There, But that was my first uh, stint with violence. And anyway, the farm didn't last. It couldn't support three families. Uh, we moved to St. George and um, I'm just going into junior high still awkward looking, red hair, freckles, and glasses, just moved from the farm, now back to a city in St. George. So you go to Sandy? Southern Alberta, Carson, Alberta, and then down to St. George. And uh, that was rough. So I'm wearing, I wasn't wearing farm clothes, but I wasn't fitting in in St. George. So I found myself hanging out with these kids out at the end of the playground who were smoking cigarettes one day. So I started smoking cigarettes. 12 years old, 11, 12 years old. Um, one day, one kid brought a bottle of liquor from his parents' liquor cabinet. Oh man, I remember the first time I felt the warmth of that in my stomach because I, everything was amazing. I could be myself now. It didn't matter what I looked like, I could be myself now. It's an amazing feeling.
0: I had that same experience about your age. I was yeah. uncomfortable around other kids especially girls especially. And, and i got high drinking yeah and, I, and it was like all of a sudden everything's okay yeah. yeah
1: i still remember the day that i felt that first warm feeling and it's i'm surprised i remember because i've done a lot of drugs since <laughs> but you always remember that and it's it's a struggle you know i said i still it's a it's a program it's a a reference point in my life and uh so I started hanging out with these kids, you know, and then marijuana came out one day, a kid brought some roaches from his mom's ashtray, these, you know, and what, as I look back now, all this stuff was afforded to us by parents. Yeah. I, I won't call me irresponsible, but you, you know, an ashtray full of roaches and what's a 12 what's year old kid gonna do? So this is how I was introduced, you know, to alcohol and marijuana and, uh there was a young man, a friend of mine, he was 14 years old, he was two years older than me, and his sister gave him the wild idea that if we stole cars and brought them to Las Vegas where she lived, they would pay us $500 a car. Which would I'm buy t- a lot of booze and pie. Which would buy a ton of it, so. I'm 12 years old, I'm going, oh, I'm getting pretty big. This kid was way bigger than me, 14. He could have been a lineman for the cowboys my wow. favorite team but so i'm all of i'm excited wait about a minute
0: this. cowboys are your favorite team Enjoy. we're going to stop and <laughs> pod- you've, you've got to leave
1: yeah it's awesome <laughs> i love that yeah we're struggling <laughs> randall so i don't know your team but we're struggling so, especially the looking forward to this year but so we get this harebrained idea and at 12 years old we go from green valley to bloomington hills to st george and accumulate 13 counts of grand auto theft at 12 years old. Jeez. And we end up on the way to Vegas with a bottle of liquor, a carton of cigarettes on the dash, and an AR-15 in the back of his dad's, of his parents. I grew up hunting. My grandpa taught me how to hunt stuff. I didn't know why we had a rifle. We didn't need a rifle, but we were shooting and drunk. And and, uh, we ended up, the, the cigarettes caused the window to fog up. It was wintertime. Not, not bad, but it was cold. The so window fogged up, and he flipped three 360s in the middle of I-15 and ended up in a burrow pit. Well, lo and behold, there was a Nevada Ranger behind us. Ooh. He comes over. He makes sure we're all right. He gets us out, and and uh, you know, we're, we're like, whoa, it's scary. You know, I'm scared. But then we hear over his radio that the vehicle we're in just got called and stolen out of St. George, Utah, an APB. So he slams both of us on the hood <laughs> of the vehicle and i literally i think i started crying you're 12. i'm 12 Jeez. 12 years old okay. so um this is my first stint with the law rebellious um they accept, that gr- that group of kids accepted me and here i am already doing stuff like this um we ended up in las vegas dt because we were past mesquite and uh that was scary i was in there with kids who were convicted of killing cops at 16 years old and You know, they would say Grace. I'm used to growing up as an LDS kid, so I didn't know about the Grace, and they were wearing hairnets and tattoos already at their age. And so it was another culture shock, another wow. Somewhere in all that, Randall, I found it exciting. I don't know why that's exciting. Handcuffs didn't feel good. Getting slammed on the hood of a vehicle didn't feel good. But somewhere in all this, there was some excitement involved, and it, it opened the doors to my addiction. Um, How did your addiction progress from there? It stay, uh, I went to my, my. they were going to give, the state was going to give me away. They were taking me away from my parents. This, this kid's 12 years old. He's stealing cars. Just, you guys aren't good parents type thing. They took right. me to court. I ended up getting like 1,500 work hours for that. A lot of work hours. Um, my grandpa from Fairview, Utah, uh, his name's Curly, stepped in. He came down to court and he stepped in and he said, I'll take the boy out. I'll I'll raise him, and uh, I went with him. And he made me do all his work hours, to the point where I would dig holes and fill them back in if there wasn't anything Good. to do. Very, my grandpa was a very honest and integral man and uh, firm, you know. And so I started going to school there in Sanpete County, uh, doing little things, smoking, still, cigarettes, and and uh, grandpa. Had, I came home one time, and grandpa. Was, smelled smoke on me i didn't know about his past he had some drinking and cigarettes in his past too but he was now you know high member in the church and stuff and he smelled the cigarettes and he said you've been smoking i'm like i haven't been smoking (laughs) i haven't been smoking that was somebody at school that rubbed off on me and uh my grandpa started coming to school every day to the high school with me for eight hours and sat in the auditorium or the or the where they ate lunch hung out with all the cheerleaders and all the jocks, why, so I couldn't leave and go smoke. He would babysit me for eight hours a day at school. This man was committed to to my success. And uh, I owe everything I know about being a man to him, but uh, that got boring um, (laughs) for me. Moved back in with my parents in Texas, and dad came out uh, of the closet. At 16 years old, my dad came to us and he divorced my mom and he told us he was gonna live an alternative lifestyle. Hey kids, I'm gay. I'm gay. Jeez. So at sixteen years old I'm just learning how to be a man. And I didn't I I didn't know how to handle that. I didn't uh, I didn't handle it well. I hated him for a long time. I, I did he too he took care of us still. He paid his child support alimony. He was supportive, but I didn't understand the whole homosexual sure. thing. Sure. He was just it was just coming, kind of, you know, part of the march back then. You know, this, this was just coming anew. Pretty uh, controversial back you know, then. De- de- definitely, yeah. definitely. And so it took a long time. I started acting on um, promiscuous behaviors, um, sexual behaviors with women because I was going to prove girls at that time I'm not I gay. I was going to prove I'm not gay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so uh, with those behaviors, I met a girl and we, and we started having children. This is where my wife came in we would eventually get married and uh at what age i was in my 20. oh okay. 1920 okay early 20s um anyway i think i was still smoking pot drinking her family were latino they're um spanish descent and they like to drink and to fit in i did that you know and i was drinking all the time i dropped out of school to frame houses i was going to take care of my mom because she's a single mom now but I ended up spending all my money on alcohol and drugs and, you know, and and uh, investigating new drugs, trying new things, cocaine, uh, mushrooms, things like that. Um, but I st- started this family. I was working hard as a framer. I started a construction company mm-hmm. at a young age. I framed probably over 400 homes in this wow. valley. Yeah, so I was proud of that. I was good at it. Making it, good money Yeah, too. making real good money and uh, and uh, I had a couple daughters by then. And one day, uh, a friend of mine introduced me to crank, which is an amphetamine. And then meth came into my life. I tried meth, and it ruined me. Right, it, it uh, hijacked the pleasure center of my mind and took me. Um, like so many people can testify to, I lost a construction company. I walked away from my family. I went to prison. I was charged with attempt to manufacture. I couldn't afford the meth; it was expensive. So I just... so I found guys at that time that were manufacturing. This was a big theme back in the late nineties, early two thousands in Salt Lake, if you remember. And they they were busting like six meth labs a day or something. There, well, I was part of that nonsense, and um, they sent me to prison. And. I did like 21, 23 months the first time in prison. I was away from my children. My wife would write me every day, but lo and behold, I didn't know she had moved on, you know. And and uh, I would get out on I got out on parole, and there was so much resentment and guilt for walking away from my family and my children that I went right back to using. It's the only thing I knew to take away that pain, you know, to to silence this baggage and wreckage of my past. I didn't last. I think the, my first parole was a few weeks after being locked up for 21 months. So this this would go on. So you went back to prison. I went back to prison. Um, second time around, uh, I got a call over the button one day. It was very cold the way they did it, and they said, "Hole, you need to call home. Someone died." I didn't have a phone call cause I was on entry level. I was stuck in my cell for 23 and a half hours a day. I called home and uh, they told me my baby sister, Becky, had died at 20 years old in a motel room in South Salt Lake. From an time. overdose? It was, she She had shot meth intravenously and it's her heart had stopped from what's called, I believe, cardiomyelitis or something. Her aortis had hardened okay. so she couldn't handle it. and. Uh, Seven of my friends were there, so-called friends, people I knew it, in the drug world. Um, they cleaned up around her and left her in the motel room and called from the Seven Eleven. So this is, it was hard for me. She was my baby sis. I should have been a better older brother. A um, lot, a of, lot of guilt, a lot of guilt from that. Um, couldn't go to the funeral. And so... Um, I got out, I swore I'd never use drugs again. I'm gonna live her life as a legacy, all these things. I got out and I used again. I couldn't handle the pain. I thought I couldn't handle the pain. I didn't know how to deal with that pain. I thought she was still out here somewhere because I never was able to, to say goodbye to her. I went back to state prison again and um, finally terminated, but I still wasn't right. I still, I had all this stuff behind me that was creeping over the top of me destroying me. And, uh, and I was letting it destroy. I didn't know a way out. All I knew that was meth would fix everything. It was like a total transformation. When I use meth, all the pain goes away. Um, A week before I got out of state prison, a federal prosecutor showed up in state prison and I was indicted for something I did on parole a year prior. So I thought I was done with prison and here, and I'm a week away from getting out of Draper, and uh, they indict me to the federal system. Back to jail I go. Um, I'm in Davis County and I get, that, I get that call over the button again that someone's died in my family. And uh, cold again, and I call home and they told me my 16-year-old daughter had committed suicide. Ooh. And so, now, for the, you, I mean, you can already. No, I've already got all this. I can't hold any more stuff. <laughs> like this is hurting. You know, this is, this is too much. You know, being the poor father I was, a poor example. All this guilt. I really didn't want to live past that point. I didn't. There's no way I could kill myself in that jail. There's nowhere to hang myself I mean, I literally was contemplating suicide. That's how bad it was, and. Uh, I ended up going through the, the federal system two more times. I just couldn't get it right. I just could not stay away from the meth and the drugs and the lifestyle and crimes. I started committing crimes to feed my habit. You know, I'm, all crimes are horrible. I look at it now. I don't even speed anymore, Randall. I don't, I don't drive past the speed limit to, yeah, to well, this well, day. After all, after all I've been through. Um, so i couldn't get off parole i couldn't get you know they terminated me. state the feds finally terminated me judge winder my sentencing judge in in, in salt lake says you're ungovernable we can't do anything we, we give up and they finally terminated me and i still got out and i started living just functioning as an addict committing crimes to feed my my addiction and just and it's the worst feeling in the world functioning as an addict and not getting caught or not having someone step in and stop you. Um, I did this for a, a long time. I caught a couple little charges, but it got to the point um, in 2017, five years ago. I was with a lifelong friend of mine, and I won't go into a lot of it, but uh, the circumstances, but uh, I was in a car driving and. Um, he was jumped by some gang members. This was a retribution thing. We were, I, he asked me to back him up and go, we were gonna go tune these guys up. I've never been part of the gangs. I've loved and hated everyone equally. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it was all about just who I could buy drugs from or sell drugs to. It wasn't about color or, or you know or gang affiliation. Anyway, I, he was a lifelong friend, so I go to help him and he got out of the car one morning unbeknownst to me and shot and killed somebody in front of me. Hmm. And uh, that was kind of, I won't say the icing on the cake because it's on the proper term, but it was like, wow. So after all, so these deaths of innocent girls, that's what it is, um, I was interior. tears. I, I, where do you go with all this? What? Do, I cannot put any more in this bag of resentment oh, and yeah. remorse and guilt and I can't live like this anymore and I don't know what to do with all this. I ended up calling Kim from Odyssey. I was crying. I need help, Kim. She had had a lot of sobriety by the, you know, this five years ago. Kim and I actually known each other from years ago. We, she was on, the, when she was on the other side, we lived in the same Midvale town and, and we did a lot of things together so I looked up to her and I called her and, and I said, uh, I need help now. She said, well, come, come into Mill Creek. I had already been sent to Odyssey House once to the adult house on one of my paroles. I left after six hours. I snuck out the back door. After Did, six yeah, hours? Yeah, I didn't even know you could go out the front door. So <laughs> I I'd sneak out the laundry room window, I think is what it was. So I was skeptical because I knew how hard the program other The new people been there three and four or five years, you know? I couldn't commit to a day of sobriety, so I didn't know how this was going to work. And uh, I went to Mill Creek, and I was there almost a year. But it took a long time to even get to the point where I could start working with these things that I'd done in my life. This was trauma for me, and and what I've realized, and, and speaking with a lot of people in addiction or people who are struggling, most of our behaviors come from trauma.
0: Oh. Absolutely. Most all. Most, you know, most all. And,
1: and you had a massive I amount had a of trauma. A huge pile I mean, of it. You know. As tough as I thought I was, and a father who never told me he loved me, and she, he, you know, a few times. But mom was very affectionate and dad wasn't. He, obviously, for, for, you know, reasons, he was dealing with his own. And uh, by the way, I'm uh, real close with my dad today. We've worked oh, good. through that. Yeah. Good. He lives in Dallas and... Uh, and He's amazing. He took, He's always taking care of his responsibilities still to this day with my mom, because my mom needs help. So yeah, it's that relationship, I'm rebuilding relationships, but uh, I went to Odyssey for almost a year and I was out on, I took some guys out. I was a navigator and uh, I was dirty. I was chewing and vaping. And uh, I took some guys out on an appointment that were supposed to go to the hospital. The kid tried to talk me into stopping at his girlfriend's, which was on the way to the hospital. And I've known him for a long time too. We go way back. And I should have said no. I'm a navigator. I'm supposed to know yeah. better. And we went there, and uh, I'm sitting on the couch while he's with his girlfriend. And the girl pulled out a meth pipe. Oh. After I'd been sober now, been in, I sat in jail for two years on that charge before they they charged me with obstruction of justice. But they know I didn't. You know I didn't have anything to do with it. But it was a long time in jail. And after all this time, I relapsed again, everything, all these behaviors I was working on at Odyssey, which is what I needed. Now I've been in numerous, numerous treatment centers, six times in prison, done the prison programs. Right. This is I've learned something from all these things, Randall, and it's, but I was still, it was like, learn something, fall down, learn something, fall down, keep getting up and falling down. I learned a lot in Odyssey and uh, I ended up on uh, in the hospital on a ventilator tube from that relapse. I, I went out and I tried to frame an addition on a friend's house in like a day. And I just depleted my body and I ended up in the hospital. And it was an eye opener. A lot of the staff from Odyssey was worried. Everybody was worried. The judge had no no remorse, she had me on no tolerance probation from that serious charge. She's not trying to hear this, I used one time, she put me in jail and I did the CATS program with Tamra and Leanne and and, um, went through that, got out and I'm living and if that wasn't enough, I I still couldn't figure it out, I relapsed again. Um, I finally went down just a couple years ago to um, Central Utah a program called Matter I don't know if I can say that on the oh, Yeah, you can say yeah, anything. Um, it was finally then, um, the material is holographic in nature, quantum physics type stuff, and uh, it finally, I don't know if it was the time, if it was my prayers, if it was my desperation, it finally clicked in me that what my energy was doing and my choices were doing to not only myself and my family but my community as a whole. you know I never when you're when you're high and you're committing crimes and you're doing stupid things you're it's always selfish it's, it's always, about you It's always yeah. about you it's about made me feel good and I never realized I'm, I mean I knew I, I was so guilty about hurting my mom and my sisters you know and but I never thought about it as how it was affecting my community, my world and my universe you know my choices we got about
0: two minutes That's left, so tell it, me, uh, how long have you been sober now?
1: Over, I'm over a year now. Um,
0: okay.
1: Going to stay sober? I'm, yeah, I'm going to stay sober. Well, it, and it's like the, the open heart surgery scares me bad enough, but now I, I want to stay sober. I know my energy's changed. I know how my energy affects everybody all throughout the universe, you know, how one crime trickles down to the whole community. And it was then when the compulsion to use was taken away. So from. you, so you don't have a compulsion. I don't have the compulsion. There's times, you know, all over this valley. I'll drive some, buy somewhere to reference. I did something right. there. that's where I used to. Use somewhere, to, yeah, whatever, yeah. commit crime there, and my hand will want to go this way with the car, and I slap it <laughs> and I go to a meeting. I'm, I'm very involved in AA now. I have a sponsor who was just like me, who did all this stuff before me, who's helped me. And a lot of that is working with that baggage. You know, I did some EMDR in Odyssey House for that trauma. But a lot of that is putting this behind me so that I can live for today.
0: And, and, and you're a prime example. Uh, a lot of people listen to this podcast or watch it uh, because they have loved ones who are dealing with addiction. And, it's, and how old are you now?
1: Fifty-one so 35 years in addiction
0: yeah and and so unless you die from an overdose or for whatever reason there's always
1: hope always hope. that's a uh, that's kind of my motto or mantra as I've been going around and sharing my stories not only does it give me more hope every day it refills my hope in me but my motto is to try to spread hope now to tell people that it's possible um, I go to, I have a meeting tonight, a fireside meeting, and then we go feed the homeless afterwards. I get involved in stuff like that. I just fed homeless on Saturday. These are just, I don't say that to brag, but this is where I connect and I can give back. I can live my amends now. I can't I can't pay back everything I've done in my life, Randall. There's no way a lot of those people have passed on. A lot of businesses have closed, whatever the case might be. When I see these people and I talk to them and I hug them, um, it gives me hope, and I can spread that hope.
0: Well, you're spreading it right now with this podcast. That's awesome. You have a hell of a story. Thank you for sharing it with us.
1: Appreciate you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor.
0: Yeah. It's an honor to have you as well, Well, Todd. thank Thank you. Our guest was Todd Hall, and you've been watching or listening to another edition of Odyssey House Journals.